This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hey everyone, you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, setting aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I'm one of your co-hosts, Morgan Lee, an assistant editor at Christianity Today. And as usual, I'm joined by Caitlin Beatty, our print managing editor. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Morgan. How's it going? Great to be here today. Likewise, I am the print managing editor of Christianity Today, and we have the pleasure of introducing or being joined by Thomas Berg. Thomas is the professor of law and public policy at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis. Thomas writes frequently on issues of religious liberty. He's been involved in legislative advocacy. His work has been cited by the Supreme Court. Neither Morgan and I can say that about our own work. <laughs> and we at Christianity Today cite him frequently on issues of religious liberty. Hi, Thomas. Uh, hi, both of you. It's great to be here. And you can call me Tom. Tom, I will do that. And I, I just wanted to throw this out really quickly. I saw in your bio, this is not what I would have expected from a religi- religious liberty scholar, but that you collaborate on musical comedy shows with your wife, who is a playwright, and you perform in the Twin Cities Gilbert and Sullivan Company. That is really awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We won't make you sing for us today. Uh, well, that, that's that's probably a good idea. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. So most of the topics that we discuss on the show are complex and kind of contentious. And believe it or not, this week is not an exception. Um, but we're going to be doing our best to acknowledge all these tensions and then work them out as we can um, and, and kind of just like thoughtfully consider how Christians should respond. And so Over the past month, we've seen a lot of conservatives, many of them Christians, and LGBT rights advocates fight over legislation in several different states that proponents of these bills say would guarantee the rights of people of faith to make hiring and employment decisions based on their faith. While opponents of these bills, who are primarily LGBT rights advocates and progressives, have argued that some of these decisions would be used as a license to discriminate against a class of people. So here at CT, we recognize that evangelicals hold a variety of positions on these issues. Issues, but we're really looking forward to getting the perspective of someone who has done a lot of religious liberty law on this stuff. So to start this conversation, we're going to go where we always go, which is starting really short um, and do a gut check from everyone. So guys, you have 140 characters to kind of tell us how you're feeling at a very visceral level about some of this legislation. Tom, can I send that to you first? Sure. It's possible to protect the rights of both religious uh, Christian conservatives or religious conservatives and same-sex couples. There are ways to do it. It requires political will, and uh, we don't see that political will at this point. Caitlin? Yeah, I think my my gut check on these issues is kind of a perpetual sadness because I think, unlike Tom, I don't know if there is political will on either sides of the debate to form a compromise. And I, I think these bills are used to really polarize people against each other. And that makes me sad. My gut reaction is, here we go again, but question mark. Hmm. Because I'm wondering, again, per what you guys are saying, if there's potentially a different outcome or there is a potential for a different outcome in something that looks very similar to some of the arguments that have been kind of fought at the culture war level over the past couple of years. 
So, Tom, we've seen a lot of different legislation in the news lately, but not all this legislation is the same. Um, There's been legislation that's been discussed in North Carolina, which is very distinct from the bill that was vetoed in Georgia. There's been legislation on the table in Missouri, and there was another law passed in Mississippi. So before I make too many assumptions about where our audience or even those of us in the room are at, I'm just wondering if you can help us kind of understand the scope of the legislation that's been in the news. Sure. And you're right. Uh, the, you know, the devil is in the details in a lot of these things, so to speak. Right? Mississippi's and Missouri's bills are religious freedom bills. That, by that, I mean that they allow um, an exception to anti-discrimination law for a religious, religious organization or in some cases an individual with a, with a sincere objection, religious objection to, uh, to same-sex marriage. The critics say they go too far and that's a really important question, but it's, it's, it's a question about the scope of religious freedom, not whether there's a religious freedom issue at stake. North Carolina, on the other hand, is not a religious freedom law. And to lump them together is not, uh, you know, is not accurate. The, the North Carolina law, it handled this problem by uh, wiping out anti-discrimination laws protecting gays and lesbians, including basically the local laws in Charlotte and other cities in North Carolina. And by doing that, you protect not only the religious objector, but you protect someone with, you know, any sort of reason for not hiring gays. You know, suppose I run a restaurant and I say, you know, I won't serve gays and lesbians. I can't even come come in the door because my customers don't like them. Well, the North Carolina law prevents a city from doing anything about that. That's not protecting religious freedom objections. Uh, so that doesn't deserve the title of a religious freedom law. And neither the critics of religious freedom laws nor folks on the religious conservative side should characterize North Carolina's law as a religious freedom law. Just to stop you really quickly, Tom, does that mean we should kind of table what's going on in North Carolina for the scope of this conversation, given that it's not directly about protecting the religious liberty rights of individuals or groups. We could talk about it as, as an example of one thing that, that Christian conservatives should not do. You know, for me, the, there is a at least a theoretical solution to these issues, and that is that you have anti-discrimination laws based on sexual orientation, uh, but you have meaningful exceptions for religious organizations that uh, have a religious uh, objection so that they can continue to pursue their their mission. Now, again, there are a lot of details on that, and I don't know that 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 we can reach any consensus, but it is there as a possibility, and one state has done it, Utah, in recent months. But the, the whole effort to to protect religious liberty in situations in which it's justified, uh, is tarred with much, much broader attempts that all get lumped, you know, are lumping together society. Right. So, Tom, I have a of a question for you just before we kind of get bogged down in some of what we call us non-legal people may call legalese. No offense. <laughs> so when when we're talking about anti-discrimination laws, are those the same thing as non-discrimination ordinances? Yes. Anti-discrimination, non-discrimination, right. What is that or what does that mean? So it it can take various forms, but it's basically a law that makes it illegal to refuse to hire or to fire someone or to refuse to serve them or decline to serve them on certain specific grounds, typically race, sex, uh, national origin, ethnic identity, and increasingly in recent years, sexual orientation and now gender identity have been added to the categories. Uh, 
sometimes it's state law and sometimes it's a local law. So in some places you can find them where the state has actually passed these non-discrimination ordinances, but it's sometimes they only exist right at like the city or municipal level. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And often, you know, often it's called a law at the state level and an ordinance at the local level, you know, so uh, that's kind of legalese. You know, this this does uh, uh, come up as an issue because, you know, one of the measures of the polarization on these issues is that the only states that are at all interested now in in religious freedom legislation tend to be the red states or the Republican or call them socially conservative states which also tend not to have statewide gay rights laws in the first place. So the fear from the LGBT rights advocates side would be there are, there are basically no protections for anybody in our community dealing on anywhere from like a local public business to an organization or business that they work for to housing. We're, we're not protected. Is that kind of the fear coming from that side. That's right. But but there's an irony in that because the lack of protection doesn't come from in, in that sort of state. The lack of protection doesn't come from the religious freedom law, which is which creates an exception. It comes from the fact that there's no anti uh, there's no non-discrimination law statewide in the first place. Right. That's what leaves LGBT people unprotected. So again, the, the solution or the, the, the way in which it seems to me we have to go is moving towards uh, civil rights protections for same-sex uh, couples and relationships with, with religious exemptions. You know, and it actually becomes ironic because the opposition to religious freedom bills ends up making it harder to get an anti-discrimination law passed in the first place. So Congress has been cons- considering for several years whether to make employment discrimination against gays and lesbians illegal as a federal matter. And the Republicans have been, you know, generally against that. But in the last few years, there have been, you know, more Republicans who they're seeing the handwriting on the wall, so to speak, right? And, and so they're willing to, to do that. But at the same time, gay rights groups have said, we won't accept the exemptions that were previously proposed in this bill. They have to be much narrower than they than they have been proposed in the past. And so the Republicans say, well, I'm not going to support this bill without exemptions. So the result is we don't get anti- we don't get anti-discrimination laws passed either. I'm, I'm going to potentially open up a can of worms, but that's what you do on a podcast, I guess. Do you think, Tom, just based on your own experience and reading and conversations with with conservative Christians, that there is a political will from the conservative side to ensure anti-discrimination laws in the states. I just feel like I don't hear that many of my fellow Christians um, talking about the importance of those laws. And, you know, right now in our political moment, obviously, we care a lot about making sure our own rights are protected because we feel like under threat. But I'm just wondering if there's if, if you sense kind of an interest among conservative Christians to ensure that there are some anti-discrimination laws? Well, I think it varies. Uh, and, and we know that it's, there's a big demographic difference there between uh, millennials and, and older, uh, older folks. But uh, you, so that I think the openness is increasing. The, the, the numbers overall uh, uh, on su- people who support anti-discrimination laws is much, much higher than those who support same-sex marriage. You know, people have the sense that, that gay Gay people ought to be able to 
go into a business and not have to worry generally about being served. And I, I, the numbers are lower among evangelicals, but you know you see the same parallel phenomenon as in the general population that there's more openness among young evangelicals. Uh, and and you know we've heard we've heard Republicans uh, say that they're willing to to do this to to, to pass laws. Uh, now, how 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 seriously do we do you take that? I don't know. We'll, we we won't know as long as there's a, a an insistence on the other side, on the gay rights side, that there can't be any meaningful exemptions. So it, we're we're in a we're in a standoff. We're in a face-off. It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie movie with both <laughs> people. You know, they got the guns right at each other's foreheads. Right. Yeah. That that doesn't bode well for you know living together in the public square. If our metaphor is a Quentin Tarantino <laughs> film. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. So I know you brought this up already, Tom, but I want to go back to Utah really quickly. So last year, Mormons and LGBT activists worked together to pass a bill that both sides felt properly reflected religious freedom for those that were care really cared about religious freedom, which in this case was Mormons, but also protected the rights of LGBT individuals, which is what these activists were really fighting for. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about how that happened and what it might take to happen in other states. And and could it happen in other states? Because <laughs> I've heard multiple views on whether it actually could. Yeah, uh, the Utah uh, compromise does give a little cause for hope that it's possible to have this sort of uh, deal of having protections for gays and lesbians in a place that hasn't given them before, uh, given those protections, and then also protect the religious Objector. So what the Utah bill basically did was it added sexual orientation to Utah's non-discrimination laws, uh, adding it to race and uh, and sex and religion. And then it includes uh, pretty substantial exemptions for religious organizations. Utah is an is a very unusual case, and so I think it it does not. You know, the likelihood that that can be repeated elsewhere is actually pretty low, unfortunately. Uh, and that's for two reasons. On, on the religious side, you had one dominant church that took uh, this sort of both and position that it was the Mormon church, that it was willing to to accept anti-discrimination laws or non-discrimination laws uh, in return for religious exemptions. Uh, in a lot of other states, you know, you don't have that kind of church that one church that so dominates the, uh, the the state and can kind of make that decision. And second, Utah laws before this one passed already had very broad um, religious exceptions, even from the race and sex discrimination laws, that is the existing categories. So when they enacted a broad exemption for sexual orientation, they weren't creating anything different 
And it's become sort of an article of faith in the gay rights community that you shouldn't treat sexual orientation any different than race. So in Utah, that was okay. If they, were, if, they were, if they were already had to live with very broad exemptions on race discrimination, then they, they said, okay, well, we can live with them for sexual orientation discrimination too. We're not adding anything. But in other places, you know, in most laws, the, the exceptions from race discrimination laws are very narrow. Uh, it's basically only only for a church and clergy. You might be able to discriminate if you're a racist church. You can say only only whites can serve as clergy. That's about it, right? We don't even allow tax exemptions for uh, organizations that discriminate on racial grounds, really, in any in any aspect. And so you can see applying that same model to sexual orientation discrimination law, religious conservatives aren't going to uh, accept that because that really means the tremendous regulation and, and loss of benefits, uh, that loss of tax exemption for a, a, a huge number of institutions. And yet it's become, again, an article of faith in the gay rights side that you have to treat those two the same. So it's really hard to see how Utah can be, uh, in practical terms, uh, generalized. I wish it were otherwise, but the, the obstacles are very significant. So with this type of topic, there is a lot of heat and a lot of fear. And I'm just wondering if we can talk briefly about how we might engage talking about some of these bills with people who disagree with us um, in a way that promotes both grace and truth. And if there's any ways that we as Christians should be thinking about how to have these conversations. I've written about this uh, issue as a case of two groups of folks with objections that in many ways are parallel to each other, even though they're so much at odds. If you look at the claims being made by same-sex couples and those being made by religious objectors, they share some really important characteristics. One is that both groups, uh, both sets of folks are claiming that something is central to their identity and that that needs to be not just in the abstract, but it needs to be lived out in conduct, in daily conduct, right? So, so you tell a, tell a gay person, well, you can have your orientation, just don't act on it be celibate, that's, you know, that's that's a really hard thing to ask, at least for the state to ask it is very hard. Now, in the Christian community, conservative Christians and Catholics ask that, but they ask for that commitment voluntarily without state pressure. Uh, so, you know, to see that the, that the conduct there is, uh, does, is something that follows from orientation is something I think Christians do need to recognize at least the difficulty for same-sex couples and gays and lesbians to, to just not act on an orientation. But by the same token, gay, the gay rights side, folks on that side need to see how difficult it is to just tell a person, oh, well, you can believe what you want, or and you can live it in your church on Sunday, but you try to take that into your business or try to take that into the college that you run, that's where it stops. That's not religion. So both sides, you know, make they, they make these arguments to each other that kind of undercut their own views, I think. And um, they also want to be able to do this not just in the pri in private, but in a public way. That's what same-sex marriage is about. It's about making a public commitment that the society recognizes. But the religious believer wants to make a public commitment too in the workplace and in 
in you know in nonprofit service ministry, not just in the confines of the church sanctuary. Now that doesn't begin to answer the questions about how to resolve these two claims. But if we could, if the two groups could have more sympathy for each other, perhaps by seeing some of the parallels, that's that's a way that I've been thinking about it, and I think. For, for you know Christians, you can think of it that way as as a matter of of sympathy for others with whom we disagree. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't defend your own rights, but it does mean seeing some of the the parallels in in the other. Yeah, I would chime in and just echoing everything that you've said, Tom. I was at a private roundtable conversation a few weeks ago on depolarization, and the topic at hand was precisely these state bills. And you had people in the room from, you know, a more religiously conservative side, and then you had LGBT activists. And the point of us being there was really just to have a conversation and listen to one another. And even just spending 24 hours in that room, I felt like I was able to understand the concerns and the views of people in the room who are maybe on the opposite side of this issue from from me and and to see yeah there is both of these groups have a fear that something that is very central to them is going to be squelched in the public sphere and there's kind of a disregard for that from the christian side toward gays and lesbians but there's also kind of a an misunderstanding from the other side towards Christians. And I think what Christians fear is a sort of privatization of their faith, that they will be made to kind of put their faith and their views in a tiny box that can only be expressed on Sunday morning or at small group, but won't have any effect in how they conduct themselves all the other days of the week. And I think evangelicals, especially, we want faith to have a bearing on all of our life. And so to to ask us to do things that kind of privatize our faith is very concerning. No, I think that's right. If we could get to the point of taking both claims seriously, then the question becomes, you know, where do you where do you draw the line? I have a lot of sympathy for the small business uh, owner providing services to the wedding. Uh, the photographer or the florist, and I've filed briefs in cases supporting them, and I've proposed legislation that would support them. Uh, I do think that those kinds of claims are the ones that raise the temperatures the highest, and so they have to be described uh, and 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 uh, delineated in a very careful way. Some of the religious freedom bills. Uh, you know, even where they're declaring an exception to anti-discrimination law rather than just wiping out the non-discrimination law, um, they have they have gone probably too far in uh, in protecting businesses without putting limits on the size or uh, what you know what the consequences would be for the ability of a couple to get uh, to get service from another provider. Again, there are ways to to draft these that would take account of both both sides, but uh, there aren't a lot of takers for, for either of those uh, approaches right now. But the for-profits, you know, it's very much, I think, a, a sense in our society that the the commercial sphere is, uh, you you go out into the commercial sphere and you, sh- you shouldn't be questioned. And it also has a lot of the, uh, brings back for, for a lot of people, analogies to the civil rights movement in the 1960s and refusals of service to uh, to blacks. Now, I think a 
serving a wedding as refusing to serve a wedding as a kind of a religious event in itself is a much narrower claim than I don't serve gays. And most most of the uh, persons that have uh, been involved in litigation have only said, I do not want to provide services for a wedding. You hardly have anyone who says, I won't serve gays, period. So there's something about the the public and kind of formal nature of a wedding that's obviously celebratory that crosses the line for some of these private business owners. That's not, most of the time, it's not actual service except in these very specific cases. Right. But you have to make those distinctions very clear. And especially the, you know, the legislators in, in red states often are not, you know, they're, they're not great at speaking in terms of those kinds of distinctions. Well, I want to thank you all for a thoughtful conversation. We recognize that our listeners have all different types of perspectives on this issue, and we invite you to bring those perspectives and those stories to our social media feeds. So you can go on Twitter, and we're at CT Podcasts. We're also on Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And please share with us what has been helpful for you in terms of arriving at your own conclusions, how you've shaped your own perspective. And we look forward to reading those and hearing from you all. It is now time in the show for Precious Moments, and this is the time where we basically go around and give everyone the opportunity to share with each other something that is bringing them joy this week, and also share with us where we can follow the other person online. Tom, could we start with you for this? Well, I gosh, I guess maybe I will say something about writing musical plays. Please do. I've been looking for a way to bring that in, right? Uh yeah, so we're we're writing a play about about uh, the Lincoln family, Mary Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and uh, kind of fa- family matters at at the White House. Uh, we are writing using a lot of period music, sometimes original songs, sometimes our own versions of polit- of period music. It gets giving us the chance to write uh, gospel music and Appalachian music and minuets from the time and melodramas from the time. And it brings it brings a lot of joy. It's also as uh, it's also um, makes you realize that the polarization in our society today is not the worst it's ever been. <laughs> and so we are still greatly blessed. And uh, I get comfort thinking about that as well. Where can we find you online? You can find me online at uh, Mirror of Justice, which is a blog of uh, Catholic law professors. I'm the only non-Catholic on the site, but trying to relate Christian faith to uh, law in, in various ways, particularly Catholic thought, which is an extremely rich field of thought for its implications for public policy and law. So that's Mirror of Justice. And I think it's mirrorofjustice.blogs.com. I want to say is the URL. People will also be able to find a link to his blog on the podcast page that we create. So cool. No worries, Tom. Caitlin, I'm going to toss it to you. Well, I feel like Tom took my precious moment because I can't really think of anything that would top writing a musical (laughs) about (laughs) Civil War and Lincoln's wife. Unless you were the writer of Hamilton, right? Uh, What's even, what's Hamilton? (laughs) Hamilton Schmamilton. Hamilton Schmamilton. So I I just mentioned this uh, roundtable conversation that I was a part of last month um, called The Better Angels Project, hosted by David Blankenhorn, who had this group of about 20 people together to talk about. LGBT rights and religious liberty. And I feel like I've kind of been on a high since those two days, just such good conversation about realities that really matter. And there was so much respect and good listening and goodwill. 
in the room. And it, it just gave me and I think everyone there hope that this kind of goodwill, especially on really thorny issues, could be extended out farther into the public square. So that's my precious moment. Um, if you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. And you'll be getting you'll be seeing lots of tweets from the Festival of Faith and Writing if you check in over the next couple of days, because that's where I will be. My precious moment for this week was speaking with Valerie Bell, who formerly was the CEO of Mothers of Preschoolers, but now is the interim CEO at Awana, which is a Bible memorization club that I was a part of as a child and teenager. And I just had this moment where I remember seeing the address of Awana always on the back of the curriculum that they gave us somewhere in Illinois. And then I realized it's about 15 minutes from where the CT offices are. And I also remembered learning that if you basically completed Awana or the set of curriculum that they had you go through, then your name actually gets put at the office. And so Valerie was like, maybe your name's here, which I'm pretty sure it is. And then she said, you should come to the office sometime. That's awesome. So that was kind of a cool thing to think about how sometimes my work has the opportunity to come full circle in my life. And I appreciated speaking with her as well. I loved Awana too. Uh, I was in it. And um, and David Blankenhorn is great. So much goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyone who also wants to be inundated with um, Festival of Faith and Writing tweets can follow me as well at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Craig Alred. And special thanks to Kate Shellnut for making another episode of Quick Dills Impossible. You can subscribe to our show. We are on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher. And if you like the show, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That really helps us out a bunch. We will see you all next week. Thanks. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.